Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of 12 Million. I am Darren Jenkins. And I am Akbar Majid. And on today's show, um, we are joined by a writer, director, and podcaster, which I did not know about until this this podcast. Um <laughs> Uh, Nicole Franklin, and when she's not on the film set, she's producing, a, co-hosting a podcast called Before You Go, which features first-person accounts from a more mature generation, including adults 100 years young, though whose stories the history books may have missed. And I thought that was uh, kind of a clever... Um, I listened to a few of the, the episodes, and... Uh, just uh you know it's weird i feel like i was sitting in the kitchen listening to my great grandmother tell stories <laughs> perfect <laughs> that's the effect we want <laughs> thanks guys thanks so much for listening yeah um you know so, so let's start there um well let's start from the beginning first of all where 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 are you coming out of like where where are you where are you operating now Cause when I when we I think well, like I don't remember were you in New York? You were in New York before, right? Oh yes, I moved to New York in 1997. So oh, wow. I consider myself a New Yorker, a <laughs> yes. Midwesterner who um, adopted New York, and then now I'm back in the Midwest. <laughs> Did you move there? For, you didn't like for the obvious reason of COVID, or was this before COVID? Why am I back in the Midwest? Well, um, it's interesting. I love New York and I uh, work there, right? So I I freelanced in news television for 30 years as a video editor. Right. NBC News for 17 years, CBS News for 10 years. And the last show I worked on was CBS Sunday Morning. And come March 8th, 2020, that was our final CBS Sunday morning show. Oh, so uh, in the studio, obviously, oh, we're watching CBS Sunday oh, morning, right. stop watching is number one show on Sunday morning. <laughs> but that was our final time together in the studio on a Sunday oh. and um, before the pandemic hit. And we were told we could not get back in the building. Mm -hmm. And it was like, this is interesting. I was also teaching at Hofstra University on Long Island. And then we were told earlier that week, you know, um, nobody's to come back after spring break. So mm -hmm. my family is from St. Louis and I had moved a bunch of stuff back to St. Louis when my father got ill, probably in 2015 and 16, sometime around there. And so um, I would come back for two or three months, you know, to help here with him. And then he passed in May, 2017. Mm -hmm. So I had my stuff here. And then I write. And so I work a lot from my computer and I'm just kind of like this nomad. But then I also had the school job, you know, <laughs> but with um, when you're a professor, you know, you get off four months uh, a year. So it's nice, you know, and I said, oh, I can go do my films and go do that being a professor. So when the pandemic hit, it was like, whoa. I was in St. Louis for 10 months um, last mm. year, 2020. So wow. then I went back on campus because I teach production. I teach okay. TV um, and avid editing and field camera shooting and some studio stuff. And so um, they wanted all of that in person, pandemic or not, get back here. <laughs> so it was like, okay. And so I was teaching this spring semester. And then um, basically I'd like, you know what? I can come back and sublet in New York 
keep my stuff in St. Louis. I think everybody was kind of finding an out of the city, out of the urban area space, right? That was a revelation, one of the many revelations of this pandemic. And so that's what I did because I do write. And last year I started a podcast because Mm. I couldn't film. And if you guys listen to the very first episode, our guest, Maude Carroll, Mm. a fantastic piano teacher at 100, has taught more than 2,000 students, was based in New Jersey, and I was going to do a film on her. And all I got to film was her interview in February 2020, planning to come back and, you know, get the the shots, you know, of students and her interacting with students. And then, of course, following a student here or there, talk about how their growth came, you know, with her. All that was shut down. You couldn't be around a 100-year-old. I couldn't be around a 100-year-old, you know? And so it was like, but her voice and the story was so amazing. And um, that's when I um, told my co-host, Bryant Monte, who's a journalist who also loves interviewing 100-year-olds. I mean, we just both get really giddy off of that. I was like, Bryant, I think she's a podcast. You want to do this? And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And so... Mm. Okay, so that was the inspiration for the podcast, right? Okay. (laughs) Maude Carroll, she was totally the inspiration. She is totally. She's still... I just saw her um, in New York about five weeks ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, she's awesome. (laughs) She's going strong. and Yes. Oh, yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> the, the, um, you know, so your your podcast uh, is there's a lot. There's a lot. We can't. There's a lot of stuff that about this podcast. But <laughs> we, we, we have to talk offline about it. But <laughs> what what caught me the most about it, and it's funny because you, how you got the inspiration because I was going to actually say this feels like it was a documentary and you mm. just said to this documentary hmm, there's some good stuff here behind the scenes you know, let's let's see what we can do with this yeah. but it's that's um are you still planning on doing the documentary um like do you think you'll still have the opportunity to still do the documentary that would be a dream, you know, come mm. true. It would be great. Um, and we have to go with what's available to us, you know. Um, it's a lot to plan. Um, when I'm in the Midwest um, and she's in New Jersey, um, coordinating the students, bringing all of the equipment, and then it's like, you know, I'd be funding that. Oh, <laughs> So if the podcast is a better business model and the story gets out there, like I told her about the podcast, obviously, before it aired, we, we launched December 9th. Right. She didn't understand what that meant. She doesn't know what the podcast is. You have to explain it first before you can even get them to do it. Film, she knows, but she heard about it from people hearing it. And and saying, oh my God, I had no idea your life was like this. I had no idea about this, Miss Carol. Oh, I heard your story. She's like, how? Where? Where is the the film? They're like, no, it's a podcast. And she's like, what? And so, (laughs) I mean, literally wasn't until like I saw her a few weeks ago and she had a student um, there in our presence. And I said, you know, do you have your phone? Can you turn it off? And she's like, yeah, see, it's a podcast. So she's (laughs) doing it. And so she's like, okay. And so (laughs) she's still getting it. So 
if it gets out more like that, if more people are listening, then you know would have watched the film. Although I know it would be like an Oscar nominee or documentary. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But it it depends. I mean, um, I'm also involved in a lot of writing projects right, right. now, and um, so like it would just have to be something that was not stressful. Like sure. I had to shut everything down and go do this film. Um, because the story came out so beautifully. Was it fit for a podcast? There's a lot of music. There's a lot of her, the way she talks. She's so engaging. I don't know. It's kind of like, I don't want to mess that up. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking about awards, so you are also a award-winning filmmaker. Yeah. So, so tell us how <laughs> yeah. did that come about? So. Winning awards? <laughs> no, no, not necessarily. We can get to that, but the filmmaking part, right? So the, so how did you get into filmmaking? I always so were you teaching first? Oh, no. Well, teaching came much, much, much later. Okay. Teaching came about 20 years into my career. Mm. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I just always wanted to be a storyteller. I was a performer when I was a young girl. And so I danced and I was in theater, that kind of thing. And then I said, oh, well, the backup, you know, you need a backup when you're in entertainment (laughs) is to produce. And that didn't make sense because, you know, you'd be an accountant or in medicine or engineering if that was the backup. (laughs) I want to be a producer, you know, so Mm. when I get some stories out there that that rock, you know, with uh, black black characters and so there's also there's always a barrier to just stories with you know drama um that's not the typical drama you see right right, right. some family drama or some comedy that doesn't have to be slapstick to some natural human living with a twist or you know a psychological thriller type of thing you know those didn't start coming out until much later um with starring black characters is what i'm saying right. Um, So, yeah, but I always wanted to um, get those stories in front of people, the people I know and I love in front of people and our history, lived experience, all of that. So, yeah, that was always a dream. And it was um, when I was in school, went to school in Chicago. And my one of my advisors said, Nicole, if you want to be a producer, you have to write, write, write. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. So I got on the newspaper, this college newspaper. And um, that's when a group of people affiliated with the college newspaper said, you know, pull me aside. They're like, Nicole, we're forming our own newspaper. You want to come with us? And I'm like, yeah, okay. So <laughs> I was on two different college newspapers in, in college and our rebel news. Uh, paper was really fun. It was called the Campus Chronicle. We were over at University of Illinois Chicago, so shout out to IC. And um, it was really a blast. I had my own column with my friend Irene. Um, she's Polish. She's my best friend in college. And so the column was called Salt and Pepper. Okay. <laughs> that was really fun. And um, so we did that. And then I wrote for the marketing department. And then um, UIC is a big medical school and engineering mm. school and architecture school. And right. so I had gotten hired by the UIC Eye Center. We had like internationally renowned surgeons, you know, come in mm. and work at Eye Center. And I was hired as an editorial assistant um, in the communications department. So I had to go to lectures and like translate stuff so that the kitchen staff could read what was going on in the building, you know, and that was great training. So I thought I was on my way into the corporate communications world in Chicago, but then my final um, semester in school, I got an internship from, I believe it was called the Minority Illinois Broadcast um, 
association. And what they did was they put you in the state of Illinois at a new station. Mm. As far away from your family and far away from your friends at school. And so they put me in the middle of Illinois at WAND, the ABC affiliate in Decatur, Illinois. 100,000 mm. people live there. Luckily, um, a second intern ended up there from Northwestern. So she's my long lived um, sister friend, Heidi Barker. Uh, shout out to Heidi. I mean, we became fast friends because it's like we were the only ones. <laughs> and um, I was just so fortunate that she was there at the same time as me. And so we both worked at the station. In in my um, assignment, I was two weeks in every department, mm-hmm. like sales, okay. the newsroom and all that. And when I ended up in promos, that's when the young woman in promos, Kim, who she was so sweet, she said, well, I don't have much for you to do, but I can teach you how to edit. And I oh, said, wow. okay. And so <laughs> that's where I learned video editing. I said, I think I can use this sometime in my yeah, life. So. Yeah. And um, it was huge because I freelanced edited at news stations. Um, well, one step before that, learn how to edit. I got hired at the station for three months after I graduated. I knew I was going to stay in Decatur, but, you know, I worked, you know, as a um, news photographer shooting and editing the stories. Mm-hmm. And then I was cast in a film, a Disney film had come through St. Louis and I was cast as a 14 year old. Um, I'm out of college, was cast as a 14 year old. All the black girls were, uh, we, um, we were playing with school children to Mayor Winningham, the um, teacher who came through town and we were cast as her school children. And, um, that was a one month of work. And so I'm staying at the house, at my parents' house, wondering what to do after a month of work. And I went to all the stations in St. Louis. At that point, I believe it was like the 18th market. So it was a much higher market than Decatur, Illinois. And I said, um, hey, I can do this in news and that in news. And one station said, you know how to edit? I said, yeah. He's like, are you fast? I'm like, I'm very fast. And he said, okay, come work with us. We need a weekend editor. And I got hired. And after seven months there with some beautiful people, I said, if I don't do this now, you know, start acting um, on camera and go to L.A. where I met all these people, you know, that's now or never. And I know how to edit. So I know I can freelance and make a living. I just was saying all this stuff off the top of my head. And so (laughs) I knew one person at one station who was a relative of a guy I worked with in St. Louis. Mm. And I basically moved out to L.A., in 1991, I guess it was, and Mm. um, was there um, editing at a few stations freelance, you know, everybody Mm. needed an editor. But when I ended up at KNBC, that's where I stayed. It was, I had five to six days a week there. Again, not staff, just freelance. Uh, Through the Rodney King riots, Malibu fires, the earthquake, Um, Mm -hmm. all of that happened. And then um, I was going to give LA 10 years, but I went to a studio, many studios with my dream of, hey, I want to produce a film. And a friend back in St. Louis had written a beautiful black love story. And a friend of mine out in LA from Chicago, he said, I'll show you how to package. He taught me how to package. Oh, wow. Get your director, get the, wow. your stars attached. But you walk in the room with all these attachments. We got all these attachments. We walk in the room. We got in studio meetings, but no one was buying. Oh, and wow. finally, one young studio exec said, 
Nicole, um, yeah, this is a great script. It's just not for us right now. And I said, why not? <laughs> you know? Can't fit up. <laughs> I'll tell you, he said, because Hollywood studios make their money from international box office and black films don't sell overseas. Oh, wow. And I said, but black people live overseas. <laughs> and he said, that's true. But that's just how it is. You know, we can't oh. sell a black film unless it's action packed. And at the time, Eddie Murphy was, uh, um, oh, okay. Eddie Murphy was dominating. Remember what he right. did? He was, he was 48 hours. Yeah. So he, he had the guy. comedy and he could do action, but comedy had to be Eddie Murphy level, you know, like okay. that big star was coming in or action, anything in between or um, drama, they right. weren't taking it. Right. And so I was like, well, that's really strange. I said, all right. <laughs> so I heard it then and I was like, I got to make a movie though. And studios in Hollywood aren't going to be my friend in this. So, you know, mm. I got to go where people are making films. I'm going to go to New York. And so instead of 10 years, I gave it five years, five and a half years. And in 1997, I, uh, well, first in um, LA, I had worked, I had made my way up to the network, NBC network. Mm. I was at local NBC first editing. And I remember when it was sweeps month, when, you know, those, they put all those crazy news stories so you can watch yeah. things were a little loud. It was always so loud in the hallway. I said, I'm going to work upstairs and network. You all can find me there. Cause it's quiet. <laughs> my colleagues were like, yeah, okay, Nicole. And so I go up there and I'm editing and um, sweep stories and stuff. And the guy who was our supervisor up there called my boss in local. He said, Nicole knows how to use our equipment up here, you know, because our equipment was pretty different and I learned it. And then he said, there's this new network starting MSNBC. I'm not sure it's going to last. Can she help us out after she's done with your shift? And my boss is like, you got to ask Nicole. I was like, sure, I'll help out on MSNBC. So I was there at the beginning of MSNBC, you can imagine. And and so I started working for Network and I worked on Weekend Nightly News and MSNBC. And I did a story for Weekend Nightly News. There was a brother who was the um, executive producer, uh, just an amazing man, Gerard Prince in New York, who produced Weekend Nightly News. And he had called one time that I edited a piece on a Saturday, I remember. He said, whoever edited that piece, tell her she did a great job. And so I went to New York, intending to move three weeks later. And I said, Gerard Prince, we need a meeting, please. And he said, come on in. And so I said, you told me you did a, I did a great job on your piece. I'm moving to New York and I need a shift to work on. Um, he said, there is an editor leaving my show, actually. I want you to take her place. And he called my would-be boss from the office right in front of me. So there's an editor named Nicole Franklin moving here. Uh, I want her on my show. So I moved to New York with a weekend nightly news shift. And then I, you know, of course, spilled over into nightly news with Brokaw at the time. Tom after I worked at CNBC for a bit. But NBC was my family, pretty much. And uh, But then I had to see who's in the independent film scene, because that's why right. I moved to New York, you know. And I also, I was um, dating a guy in L.A. who I knew wasn't going to marry me. <laughs> so I was like, there was like no reason to stay in L.A. I'm like, there's no commitment from the studios, no commitment from him. And <laughs> I was like, there was like, you guys are going to get married. I'm like, I don't think we are. I, I don't mm. think he's going to marry me. <laughs> so mm. I said, let me go to New York. And so I did. And and it was funny because we had pagers at that time and he paid oh, me when I was on a plane. 
you're really moving? I'm like, yeah, I'm gone. You know, <laughs> I'm gone. <laughs> There's a so, movie itself. Huh? <laughs> I, was out, I was out in LA around the same time as you probably. Oh, I really? was there. I was there for the earthquakes. I, actually, I was on a shoot in Canada. And we were, I think we were shooting, it might have been something that Johnny Depp was doing. I can't remember what it was. And oh, I remember being on production and getting this call and saying, hey, Darren, you need to come back. I'm like, why? They're like, there was an earthquake. I was like, oh, okay. So I get back in my apartment. I lived in like this um, three-story little apartment building out by um, Glendale, in Glendale. And oh, this is the Northwest earthquake. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got got home. Those that three story was two stories. <gasps> the, first, oh the first floor just collapsed in on itself. Luckily, what floor were you on? I was on the first floor. <laughs> oh my god! So luckily, you were like, home. all right. Well, you know what? Time for me to go. And I head right back to New York. <laughs> Wasn't that crazy? I was in Westwood. So I had moved. Mm. I, I lived in the Valley for a minute. And then I had moved to Westwood when that happened. I thought I was going to die. Yeah. In Westwood. I mean, yeah. I'm like 25 minutes from, you know, the epicenter. And I just thought I was going to die. It was so violent. But there's yeah. like 250 aftershocks after that. And then yeah. you turn around so nervous all the time. You can't sit under a viaduct in your car yeah. without that's going to collapse on you. It was way too much. I don't and know how people not, are doing it. <laughs> and if you're not from LA, like, and you first experience it, it, yeah, it's like, it's enough for you to go, yeah, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. I think, I think I can get some acting jobs in Oklahoma or wherever you're from. Mexico. You're fine. So you just put up with it. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's how I got to New York. Wow. <laughs> and did my first film actually. I had um looked at um Vibe magazine actually when I was in LA. I was like, I gotta see what what the peeps are doing, you know. So I think I had a subscription. And there was an article about young girls jumping double that jump rope and wanted to take it to oh yeah right and so i had always remembered that story and so that when i got to new york i was like hmm i should do a film while i'm here now that i'm in the indie film capital of the world next mm. to san francisco i'm sure there's a lot of competition between the two cities but i said you know i want to do a film it has to be 90 minutes and people have to watch it you know because they know i can do a feature and what will people stop and watch? Double Dutch. I was like, where is that mm. film idea I had? Because the people who wanted to turn it into a sport started it in New York. And so I, I met that. those guys and yeah. put them on camera. And the rest is history. Exactly. The name of that film was I Was Made to Love Her. To Love Her. Stevie Wonder was so sweet because EMI had to call him and said, well, Nicole, we have to call Stevie Wonder personally to see if he'll approve it. Yes, um, you know, because I used to <laughs> the beginning. I'm like, oh my God, what if he says no, not Stevie? And he said, you know, just give it to her. I think I paid $636. Oh, that's not bad. <laughs> you know, wow, and so that was for the educational distribution. When it went to Sundance Channel, we changed the song because I'm like, Stevie's not going to Oh, yeah, that. that's not. <laughs> I'm blind, but I ain't dumb. Give me some money. 
yeah. it's funny because um like uh this would be a you know what isn't double dutch supposed to be i don't know if it's this year but i know it was being considered as an olympic sport right right you had to get like 60 or so countries on board before it's considered so you had to have the number of countries who bought into it and started I believe, um, well, the Olympics, would they would probably have their own rules. But yeah. The rules that guy started in New York with the competitions they had there locally and then expanding to tri-state area, I mean, those were probably adopted, you know, right. into how the Olympics wanted to run it. But, yeah, it was these two policemen out of New York that started it and oh, said, wow. okay, we have to have rules. We have to jump this amount of times, you know, um, per minute. I mean, all of that had to be built from scratch. And our film, I Was Made to Love Her, was the feature. We did three double Dutch films, three of them. But our film was a feature, and it featured three generations of women jumping, the young women in those rigorous competitions, mm. all the way to the older women who were the double Dutch divas, who at the time of the, mm. the film, they were in their 40s. And they were just the sister circle of love and, you know, companionship, just fellowship. And they were just sisterhood, I mean, just jumping off the screen. Right. Uh, they were the last third of the film and everybody's favorite part. So we did a short just on them taking that section and adding extra scenes that I didn't get to put in earlier. Mm. And then that film um, was distributed as well. So it was just, I always tell people your very, very first film, do it on a subject you love because you're going to be remembered for it for the rest of your life. I'm still called the double Dutch lady. <laughs> no matter what else you do. And so if you did a film that you couldn't stand being around that subject or I never want to think about it again, you're like, weren't you that person who did the film? <laughs> that will be something you definitely don't want to have following you around if it's a bad movie or something yeah. questionable. Or, or a yeah. bad experience. Right, exactly. Yeah, or a bad experience. Yeah. So for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to 12 Million. My name is Akbar Majid with my co-host Darren Jenkins. And today we are honored to have Nicole Franklin with Hi. us. Filmmaker, writer, educator, um, editor, everything. So, And good luck, John, um, because I'm telling you, her career, like she has so many these things that just kind of happen because of something rather, I mean, like whoever your friends are, she just stand there and rub against you. So that way you can rub that good luck. off. From that. <laughs> Seriously, man. So what That's are you working amazing. on next? So I know yeah. you um, title seven was your latest film, correct? Yes. Um, so, so where did that come about? And uh, you know, what was the, the inspiration for that film? The inspiration was um, Hollywood wasn't calling me, which was no surprise. But I, yeah, no <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing a bunch of independent films, and I said, oh, you know what? It's time to start at least directing television. I love working mm. with actors. And, I, you know, um, at this point, I'm in the DGA um, which I got in through the Today Show because I was okay. stage managing um, as a freelance stage manager, and that mm. got me in the DGA. I mean, you know, news did everything for me. It was just fantastic. Mm. And so um, I'm in the DGA, and I'm just like, but I should be making that DGA money when you go direct an episode of Law & Order or NCIS or whatever. You right. know, it's right. a ridiculous amount of money, and it's worth it. You know, it's worth it. It's mm. high pressure to go right. in and guest direct. And I was like, okay, what do I need to do? I need a narrative feature at this point. I've been doing shorts because my first feature was a documentary. I've been doing shorts. I did um, corporate videos. 
I had directed on a soap opera, um, um, a director in training. And so I was like, but it's time to take that step and get them to like call. And I said, so I guess I have to have a narrative feature, a dramatic feature. Let me do a micro budget. And I just put that out there in the universe, as they say. And so <laughs> I was speaking, um, actually, my cousin, um, Warrington, Warrington Hudlin, you guys might know. Um, sure. Yeah, he had tossed my name to a <laughs> to a college. I was looking for a Black History Month speaker. My my friend, um, Dr. Ray Windbush, always calls Black History Month rent a Negro month. And so, <laughs> so everybody's, <It's> true. Looking, <laughs> everybody's looking for a speaker. And so um, Fairleigh Dickinson um, University um, had asked Warrington, I think, to come on. And he said, I can't do it. But call my cousin Nicole. She's a filmmaker. She can go speak. And so I did. And... They liked, you know, what I had to say um, at my Black History Month speech. And so then the film chair, he said, I want to take you to lunch and ask you something. And I thought it was going to be, you know, an adjunct professor thing. And I was like, "Uh, but you never turned down a meeting. I said, "Okay, let me go take the meeting. And he said, I've been wanting to have my students work on a project. We'll supply equipment. We'll supply the crew. And we can supply the location. And I went, hey. I'm going to come back to you with a script <laughs> because that is my micro budget, you know, and I could spend money on other things, you know, because that's like the bulk of the budget. Right. And I knew a micro budget had to be like in one location, um, you know, and a short amount of days, filming days. Right. And so I had been on my film series, a doc series uh, that I've been working on called Little Brother. And so we put out chapters of young, 15 minute chapters of young black men and their thoughts on love between the ages of nine and 13 years old. So we had done the fifth chapter in Tucson, Arizona. And a woman who had recommended one of the boys who were in the film, and they were also fabulous and adorable. She called me up and said, Nicole, I'm retired now. And I was like, oh, that's so wonderful. And she's like, I was a corporate attorney and I've done my first book. Will you read it? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, not that I had time, but I do try to read 10 pages a night of something. Right. And so, <laughs> so I, I, she sent it. I read the book. It was called Within the Walls. Her name's Daisy M. Jenkins. And I said, this takes place in an office and it's about a black male CEO who doesn't hire black employees. Yeah. And, and then he is like put in his place by this police stop that happens. And it's the image of how the stop happened, how it all played out and the humiliation that went with it. I was like, I can't get that image out of my mind. They put, they made him kneel in a puddle in front of his job so that everybody could see I'm mm. the top in charge, you know, just humiliating and awful. Mm. And I was just like, these characters are very rich. I probably have to change some of the story. And I called her. I said, will you let me option this? I need a script um, and a story to serve a script for micro budget. And she's like, I knew this should have been a movie. I knew it. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. Here we go. I said, but I have to change something. So we did a contract, all legal. And so um, basically I wrote a script and then I contacted my friend Craig T. Williams to produce it because Craig could produce it in his sleep. And I said, Craig, I've got all of these goodies, you know, I want to do my micro budget feature. Here's the script and all that. I want you to produce it. He comes back to me, said, Nicole, I'm having an issue with your script. I said, tell me. And, and Craig's an excellent writer, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so he said, 
you're trying to do a $130,000 movie um, on $30,000. I said, yep. And he's like, now what if this took place in the film? And basically he said, what if the film took place in all, all in one day? I said, yes, because then you don't have the wardrobe changes, you know, all of that. And we don't have to do company moves, you know, we could take out that ridiculous banquet scene I had in there. So, (laughs) you know, on plates and all of that. And so he's telling me the urgency that can, um, like, really push the the lead character into more active um, plots, right? And and what the lead character could do. And I said, Craig, this all sounds fantastic. I don't have time to write it. It was like March, we were shooting in July. I said, so how long would it take you to write that? And Craig's like, uh, I guess two weeks, done. You do it, we'll just- <laughs> <laughs> so, so Craig was amazing. So Craig's my co-screenwriter, although he totally flipped this thing on its head made it much darker, much mm. urgent, more urgent. We made everything public. I like wrote articles during the um, filming so that people could see our process. Oh, wow. We had a public reading and right before the public reading of the script, before we handed the actors the updated scripts, like the weekend before, Craig calls me and he's like, Nicole, like I, I couldn't sleep last night. I was like, what's wrong? And he's like, I was thinking about the script and I had this crazy idea and I read it by my wife and she's like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. And I said, what? He's like, what if the CEO were a woman, a black woman? And I was like, hmm, okay. He says, none of the dialogue has to change. I was like, you're right, let's do it. So that even flipped mm-hmm. it even more. I mean, okay. I'm directing an anti-heroine, right? An anti-hero, right? Because right. she is like a badass and nobody likes her. <laughs> She's <laughs> running this thing the way she wants to. And she will not hire any Black employees until she does. She messes up that one day when this man walks in, instead of the guy having power over this young woman who walks in and he doesn't hire or is reluctant to hire her here's this woman and this guy comes in and it just shifted the dynamic sexually um a lot of the tension just you know emotionally of Mm. course um just interpersonal communications of what you what's what is allowed at work we call it title seven because the book is about what you're not supposed to do at work as violating employee, Mm -hmm. um, all of our protections, all of our rights, they were just out the window. Sexual discrimination, racial discrimination, national origin, race, color, all of it. It was all on the table. Our actors had to be very bad people. It is for mature audiences only because we just did everything. We put (laughs) everything in it. The actors were so courageous and we shot it in eight days. Oh, wow. Wow. And we wrapped at six o'clock every day, except for one day where we wrapped at 4.30. So I was very proud of how it came out. You know, it was a lot to do. It was six days of rehearsal. I love rehearsing with actors, but that made it possible. And our actors were so good anyway. And that made it possible to do one or two takes. And then part of rehearsal was going on set with the students. I was able to bring key people, brought my own DP and um, script supervisor and producers. Um, The DP, Sabelle Martin, is she is working in Hollywood Mm -hmm. (laughs) on a lot of TV shows. She's doing amazing. Um, But she was just fantastic. And she and I had called each other back in like March or April at the same time, just, it was crazy. I called her, she called me. We're like on the phone together. Like, here's why we should shoot it in black and white. I like, we both oh. had that. 
Uh, <laughs> she had her reasons. I was a first time feature narrative director. She could yeah, cover any of my mistakes that I was going to make. We can move faster with the lighting. Mm. When you're setting up scenes, right. we're going past 45 minutes setting up those lights. Forget it. Day is shot. My thing was black and white's a, just really just exemplifying what the film is about. Right. And it's a character. I mean, all the characters are like, they have to present this surreal story. Right. Every bad thing that could happen to somebody happens in this day. Mm. No one's going to believe it if it's in color. Right. Right. <laughs> so it, it's been fun. I mean, when we screened it in front of audiences, Martha's Vineyard was our our biggest audience at the African-American um, Film Festival there, Martha's Vineyard. I mean, people were laughing and people laugh usually during right. it. It's nervous laughter because you're right. like, why is she naked? And what happened? What are they doing? What is, you know? And it's like, it's so outrageous. And it's like, and you're sitting with them back in the day in the, the yeah. you're sitting in a room full of people and it's nervous laughter. But when it's done, they're like, most people are saying, yeah, we have our stragglers, but most people are saying that was really good. It's different. Well, it's a it's a movie that makes people talk. You know, it's a converse. It's that movie, like you know, like when you go to a movie and afterwards you walk out and you're all talking in the parking lot, walking to your car. Oh my god, can you believe this happened? And you, you know, that's <laughs> that's when you know it's a good movie. Exactly. We Do hope. you still see that it's that for black filmmakers that it's still hard to get funding? In Hollywood, yes. Why do you think that? <laughs> no, no, but yeah. Why? I mean, you know. So it's I mean, there's the apparent reasons, but you know, you would think that you know you do see more of our stories, but you know, if you you, you start reading bylines, there's still a number of other people who are writing our stories who are telling our stories. Why is it so hard for us to get our stories kind of funded, produced? Oh, your thoughts on that? Well, you tell you a few things. One, you can't admit defeat. I heard that <laughs> uh, black films don't um, sell overseas in the early '90s. I heard it in like 2005, and I heard it when Title VII was with a sales agent, and he was trying to sell it at the market. So that was 2017. Yeah. Wow. So that line is still out there, and this is past Black Panther, excuse me, Black Panther. It's past right. that time. Right. And so it's like, okay, and not everything is a fluke. Number two, so Warrington and Reggie did Boomerang, that fantastic right. movie I, Boomerang. Which I was in, by the way. But we'll oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Small world. Yeah. We're probably related, Darren. And so, no. <laughs> we never know. And so I want to say I heard Warrington um, tell a crowd at something we were at that his that their international box office was hidden he'll correct me if i'm wrong but i want to say that i heard him say mm-hmm. that so you know how the box office charts are printed in like the trades right. that, right? Yeah. that boomerang that they didn't even put they didn't post those numbers oh, somehow i believe that yeah, yeah. yeah. i so i do too and so mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah, so they're going to hide that because you don't want to admit defeat, right? Uh, Black Panther, you can't hide that. Right. You can't hide that that thing went, you know, like skyrocketed, right, right. above anybody else. And so 
I also tell people, look, when you're coming to talk to filmmakers about why are we successful, why are we not, we've been here as far as the independent filmmakers. Now, I retired last year from news video editing, um, you know, and I, God bless all those people who supported me through my career. 30 years, I was a news video editor, okay? Mm. After morning went um, out of the building, I was like, you know, this is, let me just take this time and then really go back into my other work and have all these supported friends, supportive friends and everything. And, um, but because of me being employed at the networks, I was able to have an independent film career. And I was very happy in my indie film space. I did want to, I did say I did Title Seven, trying to get, you know, um, noticed. But then even when I went to, and look, I love the Director's Guild, but I go to some of the meetings and I'm like, why are we working so hard to please the man? Right. I'm not be working out here. <laughs> so hard to please the man. I don't have to get hired. If I am hired on um, a TV show, okay. But then we'd invite people in, especially the directors of color, who talk about how hard it is having to constantly prove themselves on set while they're directing, could direct circles around any of the other episode um, directors. And I don't want that headache. I don't want people doubting me on set. I want to just do my job, all work as a team, like I had in the newsroom. Right. Yeah team to get that stuff on the air, you know? And so if I'm not having that in Sunday morning, oh my God, we were a team, you know? And it's a beautiful show. People love Sunday morning. I'm like, yeah, it's like that behind the scenes too. People like Mm. each other. Mm. Nobody, I heard on one Hamish show, I I don't know, I don't want to say it too loud, but (laughs) there's one show that's been on the air a long time. I heard that that crew, and it's a New York show. I heard it's not Law and Order, but I heard that that show that crew is not even speaking to each other. Oh, wow. These are mainly white people. on, Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I don't want that. Yeah, I've heard that kind of a story before too, so. Yeah, and so there's a Hollywood way and let them dictate and validate and approve or we as communities need to start going to and streaming and supporting, you know, a streaming service like Quelly TV, which is a streaming service for black content, global black content. We need to start streaming and supporting us because we're out here doing it. We're going to make films no matter what. Yeah, I exactly. love the summer. The summer is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, quality TV. Uh, yeah. Every time she has a like a mention in the press or something, I always I'll send her a little note on LinkedIn because you know you got to support and um, she's doing good. She's doing good work um, and she's you know bootstrapped it. So you know, to yeah, me, she has. I mean, <laughs> she she came to an event that I was doing maybe a couple years ago and told her story about how she funded the startup for quote, like in the beginning, like, like for 10 grand, like yeah. basically <laughs> just winning all these different pitch events. I was just yeah. like, that is baller, man. That is straight yes. baller. Absolutely. I've, I've helped her, um, like given the letters of recommendation for some of those grants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm all in, I'm all in. Wow. So, yeah. So, I mean, this has been great. This is, I mean, this is, I mean, we, we have to bring you back. There's so much more yeah, cause, man, that, we, that we need and want to talk to you about. <laughs> I could, I, like, <laughs> whoever's sitting in your class is probably their head is just, 
I know they like to. Well, stop talking. But we do a lot, though. We, we do screen a lot. We work a lot. I, I Except for one student, all of my students these past four years came out of the editing class knowing how to edit, which is awesome. Knowing how to shoot. I just love my, my field camera class because they haven't touched that camera before. And then they shoot these beautiful pieces. One thing I love about Hofstra, we teach, teach them how to edit first, which is how it should be. Right. Mm. And when you go and shoot, you know what you need to bring in the editing right. room. Right. And my students, oh my gosh, just the Hofstra students, they don't have to be my students, but the Hofstra community, um, they don't get the love that NYU does. And I've taught at NYU before, um, and I left. Um, they, <laughs> um, mm. they are exceptional in that they're trained um, in production and writing and producing. And so I just want to make sure they get the love. They work all over New York. They just don't get the love. You don't hear you know, that name mentioned. But they work really hard, very talented. So I was honored to to be there for sure. Mm. So in closing, um, 12 million is inspired by the book, 12 Billion Black Voices by Richard White. So I yes. ask all of our guests, is there a particular book that you're reading now or that, you, that inspires you that you want to recommend to our listeners or to well, I guess the younger generation needs to pick up their eyes or watching God. Mm-hmm. I, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, I have a friend who reads it every year. Wow. And you can't deny the lyrical poetry um, that came from years ago. You know, we're talking a Harlem Renaissance writer. Right. We're talking early 1900s. We're talking the beauty, the organic storytelling in that. I mean, mm. I still, well, even Richard Wright. Oh my gosh, you know, so yeah, go back to the classics because I am reading stuff now. I'm like, I'm not wild, wild, W-O-W-E-D yet right. mm-hmm. um, by something recent. I'd have to really think, but I know that Their Eyes is, um, you know, one of my favorite books. So I'm still looking for that gem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the classics are always great. The classics are always good. Yes. But I got to mm-hmm. tell you, have you guys interviewed Michael Harriet yet? No. No. <laughs> He is so good. And so when I follow him on Twitter, and I do enjoy, I, I wonder if he ever wrote a book. I have to look that up. But mm. he is so entertaining. It's just a writer about Black people, mm. you know, um, and what he's allowed to do in the press. And I'm so glad, like, people have him on, you know, as a contributor now on some of these 24-hour shows. Right. Um, I really love his writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes me think. <laughs> Well, entertaining. He brings this, you know, the story of us in our own language too out there. So I just love it. Well, like he's, you know, he's part of it. Um, you know, and you probably experienced this to be in a news field where there are certain minds that just come along every once in a generation that you yeah. you have to appreciate and enjoy while you can because they always they just offer so much. Um, amazing perspective and in, in, input to some of our the, the things that are being asked of our society today. And, you know, we don't appreciate them. Like, like in the 70s, I felt like the news industry was at its height, you know, where like you had like these bigger than life characters who were always kind of at the forefront of 
you know, media, but because of me, like social media, not all the other digital media, it's kind of like dispersed a little bit. Um, but he's one of those guys who, you know, we haven't had on, but, uh, Akbar make notes. I will let him know you recommend it. Yes, definitely. So where can people find you? Like so. Franklin.com or before you go TV, which essentially is the same website. <laughs> so our website, um, before you go TV for our podcast, before you go, hmm. um, but Nicole .com. And before I go, I just want to say how much of a pleasure this was. I'd love to come back. You guys are awesome. Definitely. Oh, you Thank definitely you. have to come back and we'll, 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 we'll have more. There's a lot more we can talk about. I'm sure. So, <laughs> definitely. Um, you're welcome back anytime you'd like. Um, I think that's going to wrap us, wrap it up for us today. If anyone wants to follow on what we are doing, you can follow us on Instagram at 12 million podcasts, or you can go up to our website at 12 million dot live. Um, I am Darren Jenkins. I am Akbar Majid. And this was 12 million. Thank you again, Nicole. Appreciate it. Thanks everyone. Take care. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.